Well, Nick, thank you, and thank you all. Uh, this informal, uh, I'll, tr I'll be a little bit more uh, informal than I normally would, and uh, perhaps I'll just um, uh, give you a little bit of an idea of how this uh, book came about. Uh, as uh, you know, uh, Pat Moynihan died in 2003, and he died after a long career of writing more than eight, or editing or co-writing more than 18 uh, books. Uh, but it also turns out that in his career, and he served four presidents as a presidential advisor, and uh, then he served four terms in the Senate, uh, that he, in that whole period, he was writing letters. He was writing letters to statesmen, to prime ministers, to great intellectuals. He wrote to Saul Bellow. He wrote to Reinhold Niebuhr. He wrote to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He wrote to college presidents and former colleagues at universities. He wrote, of course, to his constituents. He wrote to his um, friends. He wrote to uh, Brooks Brothers to complain about the holes in his socks. He just uh, loved writing letters. And his papers, when he died, were left to the Library of Congress, and they constitute the largest single collection of uh, a person's papers uh, the, in the possession of the library. They are in 3,700 boxes. And they, uh, if they take up about 1,500 feet of shelf space, and uh, if they were, uh, if you would, that that's the equivalent of two Washington monuments uh, laid end to end. That's how many uh, papers uh, he left. So um, the publisher got this idea, uh, working with the Moynihan family, of publishing just his letters. And uh, what that meant was that we had to enlist, uh, in order to do this huge task of going through the boxes, uh, we enlisted Syracuse University and a bunch of graduate students and recent graduates to actually go through the boxes and photograph the letters. We came up with about 10 or 12,000 pages of letters uh, from the collection, and then I edited them into this book. And um, I tried to make the book sort of a narrative, not only of his life, but a narrative of American history from uh, the early 50s, but especially the 60s and 70s, all the way up uh, to uh, the current, uh, to the 21st century. And the letters, you know, end. The last letter he wrote was a note to himself uh, in the month he died. Um, and sometimes people ask me, okay, if he was so prolific, he wrote 18 books, he wrote about an amazing array of subjects from uh, ethnic conflict in American cities to ethnic conflict overseas in the Balkans and in India and the Soviet Union. He predicted that the Soviet Union would eventually uh, collapse. Uh, he predicted it 10, 12 years ahead of time because of its ethnic and economic problems. Um, he wrote about secrecy. He wrote about uh, uh, intelligence and collecting of intelligence. He wrote about poverty, of course, and race. He uh, wrote about a huge variety of things. Uh, so you might ask, well, okay, what is, 
what do the letters add? I mean, why did he, we do a book of letters? And I think the letters add um, a couple of very interesting things. First of all, they're a great window into this turbulent arc of American history from the 60s and the hopes of the Kennedy years up to the present day. Secondly, I think they give uh, a real insight into Moynihan personally, and they tell us that his life uh, was much more anguished and full of pain and difficulty than one might have thought observing him in public. He was very pained over the controversies that he got into on race. He was accused of racism in his earliest years when he was writing about poverty, and he was accused of blaming the victim because he singled out um, the collapse of the African-American family and absent fathers as a contributor to instability in the family and into the, in, in uh, minority communities in America. He was also much more anguished about his involvement in the Nixon administration. We see that in the letters. He found it, uh, he was really hopeful, naively, as he later believed, uh, that Nixon could bring stability and establish a new center in American politics. But he, um, uh, when Watergate exploded after the 1972 election, uh, he was ambassador to India, and we see these anguished letters uh, to back to his friends about what this, uh, how tragic this was for the country, but also he worried about his own uh, career and his own reputation of being associated with Nixon. Um, his, uh, the, the, another question I'm often asked is, uh, why did he write, uh, what, what are these letters about? Why, why did he write letters, and did he intend for them to be read by people other than the recipients? And the interesting thing is that I asked his widow that as I was completing the book, and whether he, she thought that he had any idea that these letters would ever be read, and she said he certainly did. He had his sense of his own role in history, and he believed that he had a front row seat in history and that his impressions were going to be significant for historians. And I think the book, if you flip through it and read it, you'll see a kind of unique um, window into the events that really come to life. You know, the Kennedy assassination, the riots of the 60s and 70s, uh, the end of the Cold War, where he just uh, pours his heart out and gives you a feel of what it was like to experience these tremendous moments of hope and despair in uh, modern American history. And he, lo he loved to write. You can almost feel the energy of the letters of him banging away on his Smith Corona, mostly in his little one-room schoolhouse uh, in uh, upstate New York, but also in his offices in New York and Washington. Uh, he loved to write. He wrote diaries. He wrote when he was ambassador to India. He wrote, uh, kept a diary. There were other times in his life where he would just sit down and write a letter to himself about something that had happened to him. And you can feel that a real writer at work who has an almost tactile love of words and uh, storytelling. He was Irish after all, so he was a good storyteller. And um, 
I think also the letters were a way for him to process his own thinking so that a lot of the thoughts in the letters ended up in his books and his speeches. But the letters are where he was forming them. So in a way, there's this greater sense of immediacy about them. And, uh, you know, I have a whole spiel that I could give about the history of Pat Moynihan, which I'll obviously not go into. But uh, I uh, really think that what the book tells us is something interesting about American politics today. And uh, what's there are a couple things I'll mention. First, oh, I want to circle back to the issue of what we learn from his own personal biography about the life and times that he lived in. Moynihan was, came from a broken family himself. He, um, his father abandoned the family at the height of the Great Depression when he was only 10 years old and he never saw his father again. And this was a very painful experience for him that he rarely talked about in public when he was especially a senator. But in the book, we see from his early diaries, which he kept in the 1950s when he was a student in London, that um, he, he, he uh, recalled these, this experience very vividly. And he, throughout the diaries, recorded some of his feelings, his longing for his father, and his um, feeling that he had to be angry at his father for abandoning the family, but other times feelings of simple emotional attachment to his father who, and warm memories. And he was sort of tortured by all of this. Um, and one of the dramatic experiences for me in editing this book was to read those diaries and then to read that only 12 years later or so, when he was a young assistant, in the Labor Department he, um, under President Johnson, he was writing a note, a personal note to President Johnson about the importance of families and um, as a factor in uh, poverty and instability in the black community. And he said, Mr. President, you were born poor. You uh, were always poor, but you had something richer than money. You had a mother and father who taught you and looked after you and gave you self-confidence. And that experience is um, uh, so important to uh, success of society and of, to families. And you can feel in reading this note to Lyndon Johnson, echoing the earlier diary entries, that he's yearning for something that he didn't have himself. And which, although he was an intellectual, he was a PhD, he was a sociologist, he understood these, on an, this, these problems on an intellectual level. He also felt them in his gut, which made him a successful politician um, eventually. But I think in terms of his intellect, uh, Moynihan, throughout his career, he veered. Sometimes he was on the left of issues. Sometimes he was on the right. But the one great thing about him that comes out in these letters is summed up in, in this note that he wrote to himself in the last month of his life. It's the last entry in the letters, which we put on the cover of the book, and then I'll stop, which is, um, uh, this echoes uh, some lectures he gave at Harvard in the 1980s, but for whatever reason, he decided to recall the theme of those lectures when he, uh, in the very last month of his life, when he was quite sick and he perhaps knew 
that the end was near, and he wrote, In some 40 years of government work, I have learned one thing for certain. As I have put it, and he's referring to the Harvard lectures, the central conservative truth is that it is culture, not politics, that determines the success of a society. The central liberal truth is that politics can change a culture and save it from itself. Thanks to this interaction, we are a better society in nearly all respects than we were. And what I love about this quote is not only the beautiful description of the two uh, conflicting and antagonistic strains of American politics that we see even playing out now, right this moment on Capitol Hill, or certainly in the last election, that conservatives are skeptical of government. They believe that culture, not politics or government, and that other factors determine uh, the, the success of a society and that government should get out of the way. And liberals, on the other hand, feel that politics can make a difference and change a society for the better. And he's saying in this little entry that both are true. Um, it's, and not only are both true, but he seems to understand in this in, in, in entry that a conflict between the true impulses is not only inevitable, but actually healthy and strengthens the society instead of weakening it. And so I always like to close in talking about this book to remind people that when we've been through a period of discord and antagonism that we've been through in the last election and that we go through every day on Congress and on Capitol Hill, if Moynihan were here, he would uh, say, I think that we should just get real about this. This is, this is our life. This is our politics. We need to have this discussion. It's healthy for us to have this discussion. We'll be better off for having these arguments. And he probably would also say that we should make them a little less personal, a little less nasty, a little bit more filled with the kind of sense of humor that he had and brought to uh, discourse and a little bit more of the civility that he symbolized. But he would understand that these um, polar opposites can interact and they can make our country healthier. So thank you all, including you, for listening. <laughs> thank you. We have, we have about 10 or 15 minutes for questions. And I just wonder how much of um, Moynihan's sort of own cult family culture that he came out of and how he responded or you know, tried to change from it, divert from it, diverge from it. Um, comes through these letters, do, do we get a, uh, what kind of a personal portrait do you think comes through of his inner life and any of the struggles that sort of you alluded to and was he able to change, um, you know, could, did he see a, a, an ability to change and grow from that experience that comes through the letters? Well, he, he, he you, uh, your question uh, is a very interesting one and implies um, some real truths uh, about families and fathers. I mean, all uh, relationships between uh, uh, sons and fathers are complicated uh, and full of uh, tensions as well as um, uh, even when there's uh, unconditional love. Um, we have only to look at the most recent father and son presidencies uh, uh, the only uh, to see 
uh, that uh, obviously, I mean, I don't want to get too far afield, but I think it, it's certainly true that, you know, uh, the first President Bush and, the, and, and, and his son, the second President Bush, certainly that's a relationship of great affection and uh, mutual support, but it, it's also obvious that it's one of tension and of the son trying to uh, outdo the father, whether in Iraq or on cutting taxes or, or whatever. I mean, uh, if Freud were, had never existed, uh, we, we'd, have, we'd have to invent him to explain some of these Oedipal tensions that exist in politics. Um, we do learn quite a lot from Moynihan about this, but mostly from the diaries because he tended not to talk about his own family experience in subs subsequently when he was more of a public figure. It does come out in some of the letters, but uh, his family members tell us that even to them he didn't discuss this uh, so much. Uh, Pat Moynihan's brother was uh, much more open about it. In fact, the brother, we. Uh, tracked down the father uh, in the 1950s uh, and found him with his second family in uh, California where he was actually a reporter uh, for the San Jose Mercury. Uh, but, uh, and he seems to have been much more affected uh, by it. But I want to take your question in a slightly different direction because it's an interesting one. I think it's no disrespect to Pat Moynihan to say that um, something that he brought to the d discussion uh, that was very insightful about the uh, collapse or the problems of the Negro family, as he called it, as, as everyone then called it, that we've all changed and that he changed and that we, you know, look at differently now. We probably... Um, see that uh, he underestimated some factors and left and perhaps overly um, estimated the importance of the family breakup as a as a factor in breaking the breakdown of society I mean I think the um, family breakup rate and what we what was then called and it's not even called a illegitimacy anymore. You know, there's so many people, so many families have children out of wedlock and the rate of out of wedlock births today among all of Americans is what it was, you know, among uh, African Americans in the 1960s and 1970s. And so because, so we might have, uh, we, we might in retrospect um, uh, see that, as I said, although he brought great insight, you know, there were, there were other things that he overlooked and he maybe m more obsessively dwelled on that insight than, uh, you know, than, than was, you know, than later historians would give weight to as a, as a factor. I mean, you know, the, the problem of the pathology of the, uh, uh, black families, especially those um, who were the descendants of slaves, um, you know, is of continuing 
interest and reevaluation in this country. And I noted that, you know, one of the towering books of the year by Isabel Wilkerson, which uh, maybe you remember the title, I think it's Search for a Different Sun or something like that, which, which just, you know, came out a few months ago. And, and uh, she writes uh, about the uh, African-American migration from the South to the North and brings great understanding to the obstacles that face black families in the northern cities that when you read this book you think, uh, I don't think we fully understood, you know, the difficulties they face in this migration of continuing uh, discrimination, inability to get jobs, inability to get mortgages, that there were other factors besides the family breakup that was itself a legacy of slavery uh, that contributed to the breakdown and hardships of families in the cities and make us understand better why there were riots um, and grievances in the 60s and 70s. So it's a constantly evolving subject uh, where each new generation and each new set of scholars brings new insights. And that doesn't discount Moynihan's pioneering work. It just adds to it. Other questions? Yes, was what had a bartender himself and how long and where did he work as a bartender? He uh, worked briefly as a bartender when he was in college and uh, as in, and in his 20s, his mother had a lot of odd jobs. Uh, he was born actually in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but spent most of his time growing up in the New York area. And they were so poor that uh, in the Depression and later, his mother would sometimes move once a year uh, because the advantage being that you could get a free rent if you moved in the first month of living there. So she had a lot of odd jobs as a health care worker. And, but there was a period in briefly where she did own a bar in uh, the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood in New York, which uh, is, if you know New York, in the sort of 50s on the west side. And Moynihan tended bar there in his uh, uh, late teens and early 20s. He also worked as a, a longshoreman, a stevedore on the docks on the west side in, uh, of, of New York and uh, liked to always tell a story that he you know, it was one of those guys like out of the movie On the Waterfront who carried one of those big hooks in his back pocket. And um, one day while he was working on the docks, he decided to enroll at the age of 17 or 18 in college at City College of New York, CCNY. Uh, and that was in the, uh, during World War II. Uh, he lasted only a year there before deciding to enlist in the Navy uh, at the very end of the war. And, and so that's how he uh, got launched on his uh, career because the Navy took him to NROTC and uh, at Tufts and uh, he embarked on his academic career at Tufts 
in uh, Boston. Um, so most great uh, letter writers are you know, avid readers. So what was his, what did he like to read? It's a great question. He loved to read. He was an avid reader. He read uh, literature. He, he read uh, uh, poetry. He loved Yeats. Uh, he read um, biographies. And uh, he read, uh, as I said, he loved history. He had the most incredible knowledge of history. And when he was uh, uh, a senator, he would come into uh, his office and say, Something like uh, where um, you know who who gave uh, can you get that speech that Henry Clay gave in 1840 whatever it was I, you know I want to quote it in one of my uh, presentations and he would send his staff scurrying over to the Library of Congress and you can see his books filled with uh, recondite footnotes from uh, all manner of things and I had a personal experience with this. Um, I wrote a book um, that came out eight years ago about the history of uh, the debates in the United States over the income tax. And uh, I sent it to him hoping that he would uh, write a blurb for it, which, uh, which he did. And uh, he not only wrote a wonderful uh, blurb for the book, but he, we were talking about the book and he said, you know, I really liked that point you made about Tammany Hall in the 1890s and, you know, how the organization Democrats in New York were uh, fearful that government would take over supplying programs for the poor and reduce their own role in uh, handing out patronage jobs and turkeys at Thanksgiving and things like that. It was an incredibly obscure point in an obscure part of the book. But it was the biggest compliment that you can have as an author is that somebody not only tells you, oh, that's a marvelous book, but actually proves that he read the book, <laughs> you know, and found something that spoke to him. Uh, he just had a great memory for books uh, and history, and he was always recommending books to people. And he did that for Nixon, uh, importantly. You know, he, he Nixon loved having him around, and Nixon would say, do you have any books to recommend uh, that could help guide me in my presidency? And Moynihan said, well, you might want to read this uh, well-known uh, biography of Disraeli, Prime Minister Disraeli, um, who is tr was trying to do a lot of what you're trying to do, be basically conservative but also have social programs. And uh, so he got Nixon to read uh, this Disraeli biography. Uh, there are other examples of that in the letters. One more question aside from the one I'm going to ask, if there are any other questions. Um, one of the things that fascinates me about portraits and, and images of people is the degree to which the individual's identity comes out so strongly. And I think this Richard Avedon portrait on the cover gives us a sense of the, of the Moynihan that we all knew, who was so highly original in his uh, witticisms, his um, bow ties, his, um, his whole presentation. And I wonder, in looking at the letters and his diaries, did you get any insights into what makes uh, a man like Moynihan um, able to so, so carefully sort of hone and project 
there, what's so unique about him. It seems like he had a very highly developed sense of his own yeah. self. That is original. Did you gain any, any sense of what makes someone like him, as well as a public figure, sort of tick and, and be able to project himself so strongly as he seemed to in so many different ways? Well, I think uh, a lot of people in public life, and maybe just in life generally, uh, decide who they're going to be, and then they model themselves a a after that ideal. You, s you see that with a lot of uh, personalities in show business. Um, and uh, I remember uh, reading a biography of Cary Grant, uh, for instance, where you know he grew up from a working class background and kind of vaudeville, but he sort of decided that he was going to play a certain kind of character of elegant, uh, uh, and witty, and uh, just n uh, by not taking himself too seriously, he somehow made you take him more seriously. And I've read stories that say that he just invented that character. He invented Cary Grant and then decided to play him both on the screen and in real life. People who knew him said that he was like that in person. But um, not to dwell, overdwell on it, I think that that was the case with Pat Moynihan. And what you see in the diaries is his, in his early student days in London are entries where he says things like, I wish I could be uh, an appealing character and make a wonderful impression on people. And I wish I could be witty and full of interesting stories to tell and that I could be erudite and, uh, uh, and in that way, you know, come across to people. So I felt, and I wrote this in the introduction, that you see him almost saying, I, you know, I want to be Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And in the uh, years of his, from his earliest letters, he uh, w had this sort of, um, I think it's, I associate with, br with British, you know, this kind of elliptical writing style, a little bit of a mannered speech, you know, using kind of Englishisms, you know, like whilst uh, we were doing that or saying uh, uh, perforce, you know, I did that or uh, of a sudden I realized, you know, kind of these mannered expressions and they ripple through the letters and you can sometimes feel they're a little self-conscious and it didn't always endear uh, people to him. I mean, they, some people were put off by it. But uh, he kept it up and he always bought his bow ties at a certain uh, place in London and uh, he was very proud of that. He, you know, his, he wasn't, didn't spend a lot of money on clothes and he wasn't vain in that sense. But he, he, he cultivated that English, uh, you know, uh, elegance, but a little shabby, a little bit down at the heels and corners of it. And, um, you know, he, he, uh, he was very amused, for instance, when um, someone asked him uh, where he got his bow ties. And he said, said it's at a certain shop in London. And then uh, he told the story that Bill Clinton uh, once uh, said to him that he admired his bow ties and could Pat Moynihan teach him how to tie a bow tie. Uh, Bill Clinton was 
president at the time, can you imagine saying, can you teach me how to tie a bow tie? I don't remember seeing any pictures of Bill Clinton uh, wearing a bow tie, but uh, Pat was very amused that he would be asked by the president of the United States how to tie one. And of course his answer was, why your mother taught you when she taught you how to tie your shoelaces. It's the same way. So uh, he was very proud that uh, he knew, I think, do you know how to tie a bow tie? I learned, I know how I learned. It's not that easy. Most people wear the clip-ons, right? Yeah. And uh, he was very proud that he knew how to tie a bow tie. You can see all of these things in the letter. They do come out.